0: Father, we come before Your Word and into Your Word this morning with anticipation, knowing that You have provided it for us so that we might love Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more every day. It lifts our spirits, it convicts our hearts, and it brings us the message of the gospel and of everything we need to have life and godliness in You. So this morning, as You continue the work in us, we ask, Lord, that You would give us wisdom and obedience as the Corinthians obeyed the severe letter and it turned that church around. Not that that is necessary here, but all obedience is beautiful to you. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross and what it means to us. We are so unbelievably awed and grateful for that. We thank you this morning and ask you to work in us and through us by your Holy Spirit and grace. And it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. So there's something about believers who are obedient to the word. And there's something about a church that is obedient to God's word. There's something about the relationship between um, born-again, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians that is just different than anything else in life. And uh it it frees it frees the shepherds, it frees the flock to pursue to chase, if you will, God's work, God's will in their lives. And so as Paul sent that severe letter, when he sent that severe letter to the Corinthians, it was with a bit of fear and trepidation, and he talks about that. He's talked about that quite at length. But it was also with anticipation because he was a man who was under the grace of God, and he knew that God had worked in his life, and he knew that God would work in the lives of the believers in Corinth even that difficult obstinate wayfar um disobedient if you will church and so when titus comes back with this report it it it's like you just heard the best news you could hear is what paul is trying to communicate in this and so we're going to we're going to finish chapter 7 and and if truth be known i don't really come into sunday school every morning with a fixed plan to go from this verse to this verse because in Sunday school there's questions and answers sometimes and it messes up your schedule and so I've learned not to have a schedule and so we'll finish where we'll finish which means we're probably going to finish chapter 7 and just get started into chapter 8 which is really not good organized teaching but yet you guys got to pay me more you know? if you double if you double my salary maybe we can make something happen so, do the math, do the math. <laughs> $2 too much, Pat. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and read chapter 7, verses, um, let's go from, let's just read the whole chapter, and then we'll get into chapter 8, if, if we make it that far. So, therefore, Paul says, I always read the end of chapter 6, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 16, 17, therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wrong no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all, all our affliction. This is what he felt when he got that report from Titus. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, and our flesh our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without... Fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's the severe letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though for a little while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for this joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So when Titus met the Corinthians, we're going to see that they came to him in humility. And they, they came to him with a report that the church had turned the corner. Now, I don't know who the envoy was, but it must have just been a handshaking, back-slapping, hugging time when Titus was able, he knew he was going to be able to take a message to Paul that Paul had been longing to hear. And Titus himself was overjoyed. And I I, I suspect and believe that the believers that reported, once they saw the reaction of Titus, there was joy all around. So we finished up with verse 13. For this reason, we have been comforted Actually, I think we finished up with 14, but I wrote my note in the wrong place. So again, you know, that's what you get. That's what you're paying for here. So, so he says in verse 13, for this reason we have been comforted and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So that comfort that Paul and his companion received made them rejoice both for their own comfort and for the joy that Titus received. And you know what that's like when someone else is joyful. It's infectious, isn't it? It's just, I, I, it, it, there's a good kind of infectious and a bad kind of infectious. The bad kind is when you're in class and your buddy behind you starts laughing and you can't stop laughing, you both get kicked out of class. That's the wrong kind. The good kind is when you get a report like this and it just, you can't get over how wonderful the report is. Although you kind of knew that this was going to happen because the God of all flesh was in charge of that church. Verse 14, he says, for if anything I have boasted, and he bragged to Titus, they're gonna come around. You're gonna meet with them, and it's gonna be a blessed reunion. You're gonna have good, you're gonna have good news. You're gonna be delighted. The church is gonna grow. They're gonna, they're gonna to respond to this letter. You're gonna see God will work in them because He is at work. He says, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And now he's talking to the Corinthians now, the people that turned around. This letter is being read to them or is in their possession. And I think I ended with this. Sometimes it's easy to think that although I have responded obediently to the word of God, and although I have changed my behavior and I have come around to biblical thinking, others won't. God is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure? Aren't you glad it isn't me that's at work in you? I can't even get the, the time straight. It's God that's in, <laughs> it's God that's at work in all of us. And so we looked at some of the verses there, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter two. He is the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the God, of God. Paul knew that the God who saved the Corinthians would use even his severe letter to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he knew that the same God who indwelt them would give grace to respond with godly sorrow, repentance, and change. And I believe that's where we finished up last week. So then, (coughs) Paul is still talking about Titus now. And he says in verse 15, he says, His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Look at the word. What was the word that Titus his affection abounded because of? The word was obedience. Not that he obeyed not that the Corinthians obeyed Paul, they obeyed God's word. What a blessing this proved to be to Titus. It appears that when the Corinthian envoy met him, met Titus, they met in humility. Now this is a group of people who just came a long distance to meet with the representative of the man, the apostle, who wrote them an excoriating letter, a knock-it-off, figure-it-out, quit-your-belly-aching letter. And so there's humility here. They've, they've obeyed that letter. So they met Titus, it says, in humility and obedience. Uh, this is the true mark of someone that has recognized he has been wrong and is responding to God's correction. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. The Corinthians had humbled themselves upon reception of Paul's letter. Word traveled through the church. Truth began to have an effect that it had not been having in that church at large. That is, most of the believers in Corinth repented with a godly sorrow, a repentant sorrow, a we-were-wrong sorrow, an I-was-wrong sorrow. That's when it becomes very, very important to recognize what God is doing. I was wrong, individuals were saying. (laughs) Over time... There would have been discussions with one another, maybe messages would have been preached in that church, uh, taking off from the information in the severe letter and other letters that Paul had written, and the, the gospel itself that the Lord Jesus Christ delivered, and they began to work on ways to make things right with Paul. Most likely, the group that they chose to send to meet Titus were some of the ones that might have initiated all of this. At any rate, Titus was struck by their obedience... And it's interesting that Paul would focus on that word because it is obedience to the sufficient word of God that results in the kind of blessings that that group bought, brought to Titus. And then, by Titus, his report to Paul, that obedience brought a blessing to Paul. It just, it, it, it has a, a gigantic ripple effect, domino effect, I don't know, some kind of metaphor that, that, that predicts and shows that obedient Christians begin to affect people all around them. And you know that. When, you're, when we're with people that, what does the scripture say? I should have looked it up. Wrong friends corrupt good morals. But what do good friends do? Biblically good friends. Don't they strengthen your convictions and strengthen your resolve and bolster you and challenge you to move ahead for Christ? That's what good friends do. That's what blessed good friends do. And then we'll finish with verse 16 and then see if there's any questions. I rejoice, Paul says, that in everything I have confidence in you. Now, the matters that were dealt with in the severe letter were now closed as far as Paul is concerned. His confidence in the Corinthians was restored because of their repentance and obedience. Now he will share with them something that has been on his heart for some time. He knows he can trust them with us, this, because they have been obedient in a much more difficult matter. Paul covered quite a bit of ground in this chapter. He went from reminding the Corinthians... Of promises that God had made to them regarding salvation, to begging them to be open to him as he had been to them, to, to make a place in their hearts for him, he said. And then he went back to the issue that he had raised in chapter two regarding Titus in Macedonia. He let them know that the great sorrow and anxiety he felt in having to had to write that what has been termed the severe letter to them, rebuking them and challenging them to repentance over several issues, was at a close. It had a it had, had a successful completion. He closes this chapter grateful for their obedience, grateful for their repentance, great for their, grateful for their humility. His boasting to Titus about their anticipated renewal was justified and that had to delight him. Uh, he, he could now talk to them about a very important project um, and those of us that are in positions of responsibility whether it's in shepherding a church, fathers and mothers, positions of responsibility in your workplace, whatever, this scripture really rings true. Paul, um, John said to his, to the church in, uh, that he was sending a message to in, in 3 John, he said, I have no greater joy but to know that my children are walking in truth. And walking, as you know, is is the word that means proceeding along, living in truth. And so that's what's happening here. Paul has seen a church come around from terrible situations, and send an envoy to Titus to let him know that they indeed were in humility, again, serving the living God. So, any questions about chapter 7 in general or the last two verses there? You know what it's like when you've had to confront someone and they come around. Just imagine that times however many people were in the church. (laughs) This was a wonderful time for Paul. And so now, now, in chapter eight, let's um, <clears throat> let's read um, the first six verses of chapter eight. I rejoice in verse seven, 16 of chapter seven, that in everything I have confidence in you. Now, brethren, <laughs> that's set aside. Now, brethren. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond... And beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urge Titus that he had, as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So Titus has met with the Corinthian church. Um, Paul is now going to challenge them to partake in the gift to Jerusalem. And we'll look at the Jerusalem church and what might have been going on there and the difficulties that are, had arisen, the, the makeup of that church and how that could have contributed to some of it. Not, not, not that the makeup was bad, but that the fact it was the what they would call, you call the mother church, the first church. Boy, I hesitate to use that term. I'm using it properly, not, not in the strange sense. But that um people went there and ended up getting saved, and then in getting saved, losing everything, losing their jobs, losing their families. Now they're trapped in Jerusalem, and the church has to care for them. So be thinking about that. We'll talk about the the straits, if you will, that were were occurring in Jerusalem at the time. Paul sets about in this chapter, chapter 8, and in the next two, 9 and 10, lovingly challenging the Corinthians to finish the job of giving to the Jerusalem church that they had started and apparently dropped probably as a result of the conflict that had arisen between Paul and the false teachers in Corinth. In this chapter, chapter 8, he brings to bear the example of others, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the example of the Corinthian church itself, and the necessity of not just talking about your faith, not just talking about Christianity, but actually living it. He culminates chapter 8 in making practical arrangements to distribute the gift that he's challenging the Corinthians to provide in a manner that will bespeak transparency and humility. This is a marvelous section of scripture that gives excellent direction to giving and sharing with the brethren, our brethren who are in difficult and in difficult financial straits. Nowhere does this teach communism. For it is clear that this is an action that is repeated only a few times in the New Testament. Individuals were expected to make their own way in life. For Paul teaches elsewhere that he who will not labor should not expect to eat. Second Thessalonians 3, 10, 11, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we used we used to give you this order. This is the order we gave you. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. Does that sound kind of modern? Can, can we connect with that? <laughs> About half the population. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. This is Christians, some in the church, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, and eat their own bread. That is, work for your own bread, and eat your own bread. 1 Thessalonians four eleven. And to make it your ambition, he says to the Thessalonians, to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Proverbs twenty four, thirty through thirty four. I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Sloth comes by degrees, generally. It doesn't, you don't wake up, you you don't go to bed a productive member of society and wake up the next morning a lazy bum. It comes by degrees. It comes, it can come by discouragements. It can come by all kinds of things. And that's one of the reasons why we need to be involved with each other. So we know who needs what and why and whether or not they should have the opportunity to work for it themselves or to get it. I was a, in a church I served in many years ago, I was a deacon and it was my responsibility to meet with the people who had needs. And I never, I wish I'd been smart enough to keep track of Numbers, but it was probably maybe a quarter of the people I met with actually had genuine needs. The rest of them were trying to scam the church. Um, often, I mean, I'd heard this this so, told to me by older, godly men. You're going to run into people who are going to say their back's bad when you have work for them. <laughs> now, there are bad backs in the world. That's not what I'm saying, but that many. It was amazing. I remember meeting with people at the a motel here in town that we'd put them up with up in, and uh, there just wasn't any way they could do any work at all. but so Paul says, "Work with your hands. make your own way." And one of the reasons for that, one of the blessed reasons for that is so that we, if you're making your own way, you'll be in a position to help others. You can help others when they're in need. What a blessing that is. So this, in chapter eight and on is going to be what we we've looked at it before years a couple years ago this thing could be a biblical model for giving so now he says brethren we wish to make known you the grace of god which has been given in the churches of macedonia so these are the churches of macedonia um thessalonia south thessalonica berea uh Troas, well, no, those are down in the other area. Philippi, they're up in that section there where you see the blue-riding churches of Macedonia. It's the best map I could find. Um, so there's Neapoli in Acts chapter 16, verse 9. It says, in the winter of the year 49, the oh, actually, the, the, the information I got was, in the winter of the year 49, the Apostle Paul lands on European land for the first time. After traveling for two days, he arrived in Neapoli, the modern-day Ahagios Nikolaos." Area. And after following this road, the Via Ignatia, he reached Philippi, which was about 12 kilometers, that's what it was, from Neapoli. His companions were Silas, Timothy, and Luke the doctor, uh, the evangelist and writer of Acts of the Apostles. Paul returned a second time seven years later. Then there was Philippi. These are just four of the main cities that are, that are mentioned in Macedonia. Acts chapter 16, 1 through 40. Is where that's mentioned. The church in Philippi was founded by Paul on his second mission, missionary journey. Thessalonia, Thessalonica, Acts 17:1 through 9. The Apostle Paul also visited Thessalonica, Thessalonica around 49 A.D., and his experiences were chronicled in the Book of Thessalonians, and the books, and also in Acts. And then Berea, in Acts chapter 17, during the night. Paul and Silas left with the help of Christians for Berea. They walked for a while on this, the Ignatia Road and changed their route close to Pella, crossing a lush, green, fruitful, and beautiful area. The spot in Berea where it is said that Paul stood and preached is what they're talking about there. This, the so-called Apostles Paul's Podium is a monument there, I guess you can visit. As a result, a number of prominent Greek women, it says in Acts chapter 17, believed. Greek men and women believed. Evidencing the change of subject in chapter 8, verse 1. Paul starts this section with the particle now. His reference to the giving hearts and minds of the Macedonian churches begins first with a reference to the grace of God. We make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. For this is what motivates a believer to give, the grace of God. It has been said you can tell a lot about a person by how he deals with money. Money itself is neither good nor bad. It is a tool that God puts in the hands of many to bless His people and to bless the world. I still, even today, see it misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. No. The love of money is the root of evil. The love of money. Far different. Far different. So if it was true, the 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 former was true, everybody here walking around with money in their pocket, you're evil. You've got roots of evil in your pocket. No, it's what you do with what's in your pocket that determines whether you're going to be a blessing or a curse to people. Any questions about beginning chapter 8? That auspicious beginning in verse 1? Verse 2. That in a great ordeal of affliction there, the churches of Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That's an interesting combination of words. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Do you have to be rich to be joyful? Do you have to be poor to be joyful? Do you have to give to be joyful? You don't have to, but can it result in joy? Can being rich result in joy? Of course it can. If it's a gift from God and you're using it aright. So apparently, it really cost the churches of Macedonia to sacrifice this gift for the Jerusalem church. Their poverty was stifling. He uses terms like great, which means much or many, and refers to the extremity of their situation. The word he uses for ordeal is the word Greek word, which is a trial that proves character, proves or disproves character. This is not missing one meal. This is a veritable onslaught of difficulty that has resulted in abject poverty, but it had not broken their spirit nor had, nor had it reduced their wish nor willingness to help others. It's often been said that the poor are the ones who will help the really poor because they know what it's like. So ordeal, um, approving a trial that results in approving or approval or it necessarily disproval. So in that they had what Paul calls a superabundance of joy. That's the word he uses there. (laughs) This would be the equivalent of having a surplus of joy or an overflow. The top of your head is burst open and joy is flowing out. What's the song? Joy is our flowing like a river. That's that's the picture here. Uh, It was a delight to them to help the church. It was a delight to them to help the church in Jerusalem. They were broke. And they were looking forward to helping the church. As a matter of fact, they begged Paul. We'll see that. There is a far more, there's far more behind this than meets the eye as one simply reads the text. Investigating further into other scripture, one finds out that the Jerusalem church was comprised mostly of Jews. Now, in first century Rome, the Jewish culture was an elitist culture. They believed they were far superior to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. And uh, so the churches in Macedonia are composed of primarily Gentiles. And they want they beg Paul to help the Jerusalem church. They beg him. This is what the gospel does. It changes hearts. It changes minds after it changes hearts. Um, investigating further, we find out that the Jerusalem church was comprised mostly of Jews. The Macedonian church was primarily composed of Gentiles. The fact that recent enemies... Are now seeking to take care of one another would have been patently unbelievable to the Roman authorities. The churches in Macedonia gave gladly and joyfully. This is what Paul meant when he said God loves a cheerful giver. Paul uses another descriptive term, another descriptive term here. He uses the term deep poverty. The word deep translates the Greek word bathos, bathosphere, has to do with down under the ocean. Um, in Homer, it talked about deep down way deep down. This is a deep, heavy, weighty poverty. This is a hand-to-mouth existence day to day. We've all heard the colloquialism, you're in deep water now. That's what is being conveyed here. They had no resources, it seemed, to give, but they dug deep and they found some. They were nearly forced to beg to survive, and yet out of their sanctified hearts they gave as much as they possibly could. Remember the widow who gave a mite, which was just a, a, a portion of a penny. And compared to the, Jesus told the Pharisees and, and his disciples there, compared to the ones who gave so much, he said she gave more because she gave out of her poverty. She gave all she had. And then the word poverty... um, one destitute of riches and abundance, destitution, um, beggary, almost reduced to the point of begging. Out of this deep down deep poverty, their gift overflowed, Paul says, in the wealth of their liberality. These are words, these are words that really shouldn't go together. Poverty and wealth, affliction and liberality. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these men and women, a series of oxymorons live. Their wealth... And it means plenitude, abundance. It's the word which you would associate with, you know, in modern terms, Bill Gates or, or Jeff Bezos. Lots and lots of money. Enough money to run a country. That's what the idea is. Their poverty resulted in a wealth. Paul finishes up describing them with an interesting word that connotes the idea of simplicity or sincerity. It is the opposite of being double-minded. It is the word liberality. Uh... It's mental honesty. They they So here's how they, they could do this. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. But we'll, we'll, we'll say it twice then. They looked at what they had. They didn't take thought for the future, but they did what they could with what they had. They didn't go borrow money. They didn't uh, presume on the future, but they did, out of what they had, give. And we'll talk more about that in a bit here. The Macedonians did not have to talk themselves into this. The Holy Spirit moved them, And they did it. They realized the need and they did everything they could to meet that need immediately and with gusto. So this is the example that Paul is bringing to the Corinthians. He says, the churches, I want to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, and and by the way, the Corinthians would have known about the difficulties in Macedonia. Word would have gotten to them. There There was news back then, probably fake news as well, but there was news back then. That their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their simple minded, without without wax, Jim often signs, giving, their liberality. Verse three, and then we'll talk about, ask if there's any questions. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. There's no fixed percentage for giving in Scripture. Anybody seen a number in the New Testament? 7.385, 21... There's no number. True, the Old Testament set the bar at 10% for tithing, but that is the support of the government, the Old Testament religious government. But never do you see some sort of standard for giving, even in the Old Testament. The Macedonians gave, according to Paul's personal testimony, for that is what he was saying here, up to their ability, and then realizing the great need in Jerusalem, they went beyond their ability, and they did this willingly of their own accord. The Greek word means self-chosen, self-chosen. We chose, we self-chose to do this. We weren't forced to do it. We weren't browbeaten into it. We weren't intimidated. We weren't peer pressured into it. We did it ourselves. (laughs) There was no compulsion, no peer pressure, and none of that had a part in this. Their giving was sacrificial. Had there been some percentage or standard, it would have been easy for some so it would have been easy for some and difficult for others. If Paul said, give this amount, he didn't do that. Give as God leads. He trusted God. <laughs> for some, had there been a percentage or a fixed amount, it would have been easy. It would have been no skin off their nose. For others, it would have been very difficult, very difficult. <laughs> they gave from their hearts. That was the standard. In understanding what it means that the Macedonians gave according to their ability, and yet beyond, it should be noted that they gave out of what they had. That is, if a particular believer from Berea had the equivalent of $15, this would have been what he was able to give. But to give it all would mean he took no thought for his future, for food, for the necessity of life. This would have been the idea of giving beyond one's ability. They gave what they had out of their hearts to sustain the Jerusalem church, and we'll talk about what later on, we'll talk about what's going on in the Jerusalem church and why this great need was there. It wasn't mismanagement, malfeasance, misappropriation of funds like we have rampant in modern government. It was a famine compounded by the Roman government damaging and hurting the people. But any questions or comments about verses uh, 1 through (laughs) 3? Verse 4, here's what they did. I'm trying to, I'm, I couldn't come up with a good characterization, but it would be like you know someone in need, and you know who can give to that need, or at least you think you do. And you know this person's really struggling, so you don't ask them. They, there's no way they can help. It would damage them beyond belief. And they beg you for it. You've got to let me help. This is what happened. It says they begging us, the Macedonians, with much urging for the favor of particip for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Apparently Paul had urged the Macedonian church based on the Corinthian zeal to give to Jerusalem the year before. We see this in chapter 9, verse 2, where he says to the Corinthians, he says, For I know your readiness, uh in 2 Corinthians 9, 2, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. So the Corinthians had made overtures to give to the Jerusalem church at least a year before. And then they dropped it, probably because of what was going on between Paul and the false apostles. That early encouragement resulted in the Macedonians insisting that they be allowed to participate in giving the gift to Jerusalem. It's likely that Paul did not even ask of them ask them because of their great poverty. One historian described the situation in Greece at that time this way. He said, "The condition of Greece in the time of Augustus was one of desolation and distress." It had suffered severely by being the seat of successive civil wars between Caesar and Pompey, between the Triumvirs and Brutus and Cassius, and lastly between Augustus and Antonius. Besides, the country had never recovered from a long series of miseries which had succeeded and accompanied its conquest by the Romans. And between those times and the civil conquest between Pompey and Caesar, it had been again exposed to all the evils of war when Scylla was disputing the possession of it with the general Mithridates. The provinces of Macedonia and Achaia, when they petitioned for a diminution of their burdens in the reign of Tiberius, they, they petitioned the king, Tiberius, ease up on us. We can't pay the taxes, you're asking. They were considered to be deserving of compassion that they were trans, and they were transferred for a time from the jurisdiction of the Senate to that of the emperor, which was involving less heavy taxation. So they petitioned at this time. These provinces did. The, the governments did and said, we don't have the money. We can't send these taxes in. And the government gave them some relief. Murray Harris, in his commentary on Second Corinthians, details the conditions in Greece at that time. Throughout the principate of Claudius, which was A.D. 41 to 54, there were droughts and famines. The most severe and widespread spanning the years... Whoops. The most severe spanning the years... Um, 45 to 47. This famine would have been prolonged and aggravated by the sabbatical year beginning fall AD 47 when land had to lie fallow, according to Jeremiah. Uh, that famine is always, uh, let's see, let me figure out what I'm doing here. This, this, uh, other, another historian named Gap rightly observes that famine is always a class famine affecting the poor before and more. Than the rich. While all classes of society suffered serious economic dif- dif- discomfort during the sab- the shortage of grain, the actual hunger and starvation were restricted to the lower classes, from which Christians, at least in Jerusalem, largely came. Living in Jerusalem was expensive in the first century. The city's unfavorable geographical and commercial position meant that water was always in short supply, raw materials scarce and food prices inflated. At the gates of Jerusalem, custom duties were levied on agricultural produce for the sake for sale in the city. Fruit purchased in Jerusalem cost three to six times what it cost in the country. When a harvest failed, the normal prices already inflated could multiply up to 16 times. This is what was going on at this time in Jerusalem. And Josephus mentions a house tax that was, lemon, that was levied in Jerusalem. As the mother church of Christendom, the Jerusalem church was obliged to support a proportionately large number of teachers and probably to provide hospi- hospitality for frequent Christian visitors to that city. Palestinian Jews were subject to a twofold crippling taxation, a Roman civil tax and a re- Jewish religious tax, which in the time of Jesus may have been between 30 and 40 percent of their total income. During the reign of Tiberius, Judea became overwhelmed by its tax burden and requested imperial relief. That's what I just read earlier. (laughs) They requested imperial relief and they were granted some relief. And the the heavy-handed Romans recognized how bad it was and granted them some relief. This is what was going on. Famines, war, and heavy taxation. It was in this climate that the Macedonians literally begged Paul to be able to contribute to the Jerusalem church, a church comprised mostly, primarily, of a class of people that had originally looked down upon and disdained, if not hated, those who now begged to help them. The gospel changes people. So we're going to close with this. This whole, this whole next three chapters is going to be Paul working with the Corinthians to do something for the Jerusalem church as well as I know I know a great many commentators have said there's, there's no doctrine in 2 Corinthians I disagree I think there's doctrine in every book of the Bible and uh, there's truth and organized organized doctrine that the Holy Spirit has put there they haven't said there isn't they said it's the least doctrinal let me put it that way it's the least doctrinal I would grant them that who am I anyway <laughs> but it was in this climate wars famines and continual taxation, both from the religious and from the civil authorities, that the Macedonians begged to help. They had their problems up in Macedonia. This is why the Jerusalem Church was in such great financial stress. They were being hammered by the situation, by the days, by the uh, all of the uh, occurrences, and by the taxation, both, like I said, from Rome and from um, the Jewish authorities. And this is a group of people who had begged to give. This is what Paul is going to use, and we're going to see throughout this section of Scripture that he will use the Macedonians as an example. He will use the Lord Jesus Christ teaching as an example, and, he'll use the, and he's already done it. He'll use the Corinthians themselves as an example of why they should help the Jerusalem church. So as I said earlier, there's something about a church and a body of believers that obeys the word of God. It's people that that those in responsibility know they can trust to take responsibility themselves and do things for the Lord. This is what Paul is going to call the Corinthians to do. This This is the major issue of the day, taking care of the Jerusalem church. He knew because of their response and humility and repentance to the severe letter that God was at work in them. And now if he asked them to help, they had gotten past what stopped them a year ago, and they would do something about it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It makes people obedient. The Holy Spirit, working through the words of Scripture, makes people, causes people to become delightedly obedient and to beg to do things that they probably didn't even know they could do themselves. Let's close. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this morning and looking at how you can move people to go beyond themselves, to take care of others, and to be a blessing, uh, walking their walk, living out the scripture that they have imbued, that, that that you have worked into their lives. You have told us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a privileged, this is a prime example of that, and the privileged few that are able to do that do it because of your Holy Spirit only, not because of something that's in them. Nothing in us. It is you who are at work to will and to work of your good pleasure. And we would like to be obedient and use the word correctly that is in the scripture, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.